Revelations 3, 7, 13. To the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, <clears throat> who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. <clears throat> Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may take, seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia. It's one of the good churches. You know, we've seen some churches that, you know, get a little bit of a scolding whenever we're reading uh, Revelation. But Philadelphia is one of the good ones. Nothing but praise for Philadelphia. Jesus knows their works, he says. They haven't denied his name. And it's not because they're, they're superheroes. They're not super Christians. I mean, Jesus says, look, I, I know that you have only a little power. You know, you're not powerful people. Yet, as, as weak as they are, they have stuck to Jesus. Even when the whole world is, is screaming in their faces, telling them to deny him. They've been hurt, and they have the scars to prove it. It is true that they have lost much for the sake of Christ. When Christians hear about churches like this, we, we can't help but play the comparison game, you know? Like, have we suffered enough? H have we endured enough persecution? H have we lost enough in order to be rewarded like this church in Philadelphia? Or, or maybe, even more importantly, we ask ourselves, are, are we prepared to lose this much? But interestingly, this letter to the church in Philadelphia barely addresses any of these concerns. It doesn't ask how much we've lost or how much we prepared to lose. It asks the opposite. Jesus asks, how much are you prepared to gain? How much are we prepared to gain from Christ? Do we realize what Jesus has given to his people? If you know Jesus as your Savior, do you know the riches of that salvation? And so here's the truth that we're going to see today. Jesus has given his weak little church infinitely more than they will ever lose. So this morning, I want to meditate on these gifts that we see in the text, these gifts that Jesus is giving his church. And we're going to see them as we go through each verse. Jesus gives his weak little church, one, an open door, two, a day of victory, and three, a place in God's temple. 
an open door, a day of victory, and a place in God's temple. So Jesus gives his little weak church an open door. So let's talk about what this open door in the text symbolizes, and then we're going to talk about what this means for them back then and us today. So sometimes when Christians use the phrase open door, uh, either us or in the, in the Bible, we refer to an open door for evangelism like an open door into a country that's hard to reach, an open door into the, the personal life of your neighbor and you can share Christ. But in the book of Revelation, open door is used differently. An open door means something else. In chapter 4, uh, the, the next chapter, we see John, uh, and he, he has an open door opened in the sky above him, an open door into heaven, and through that door, he observes the heavenly throne room, the, the, the beautiful throne and all the creatures gathered around it. He observes the lamb on it and, and the scroll you know, with all the plans of God and all the heavenly council. Through that door, he sees the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down. He sees God making all things new and perfect and beautiful and as they're supposed to be. See, the, the, the door in, in the book of Revelation is what gives access into God's presence, into communion with, communion with God. It's an open door to God. And this door requires a key. Not anybody can just have this access. Look at verse 7. It requires the key of David. The key of David, it's an Old Testament reference from the book of Isaiah, the prophecy. And in short, if you were to go to this section of Isaiah, you would see that there's this thing called the Valley of Vision. And in this valley, the future of Israel was seen. And there was a man uh, named Eliakim, and he was a governor or a steward of David's kingdom. And he receives in this prophecy the, the key of David, and he opens and, and no one can shut, and, and what he shuts no one can, can open. And he, essentially through that, he receives control over the entire kingdom. His word goes. He's the guy who says what happens. The final word. Now, Eliakim is just a, a temporary peg in the wall on which the kingdom of Israel hung. But Jesus is the long-awaited ruler, the true king, not a steward. Jesus' voice is yes and yes and no and no. What he says goes. He is the final word on all things. He has the key to whether or not we have access to the creator of the universe. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus actually gives like a little prelude to all these letters to the seven churches. And in that prelude, he mentions the key. And he says something interesting about it. He says to the churches, don't be afraid. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm alive. I was dead, but I'm alive forever now, and I'm the one who has the keys of death and Hades. Jesus now, through his work, owns death. He has gone down into the depths of the grave like a great hero charging the dungeons of a foul kingdom, and he has had victory there. 
He has defeated death itself by dying for our sins. And now Jesus is the ruler. He has the keys. All souls are his subjects. Their fate hangs upon his will. Our fate hangs upon his will. Because the, the, the keys of life and death, they, they are firmly in the hand of Jesus. In his hand alone. And the wonderful news that we see is that Jesus has used this key to open the way into God's presence for us. The curtain of the temple was torn when he died. The sin that led to our death, it's been defeated by him. And so now there is a doorway into heaven, a doorway, an open door into life, a life of knowing God, of communing with God. Look at verse 8. This door now stands wide open to the church in Philadelphia so that they might commune with God and be comforted by his wonderful plan, that they, they might, in a spiritual sense, gaze into the heavenly courts and be refreshed and renewed. That's what this door symbolizes. It's not like Christians have this secret portal that you walk through. It is the Christian life of communing with, with God. So that's, that's the symbol. But what does this actually mean for the church? These Christians in Philadelphia had had doors slammed in their face time and time again for following Jesus. Pagan family members, that they slammed their door in their face. Uh, the rulers of the synagogue that we see mentioned slammed the synagogue doors in their face. Society as a whole would continue to slam doors in their face. But the door to God was wide open before them. They've may, maybe only had a little power Maybe a little humble testimony of, of being shunned for refusing to deny Jesus' name. This, this little weak church may have lost so much in earthly standards, you know, regarding their social standing, friendship, livelihoods. But they have gained infinitely more by receiving this open door into God's presence. So what does this mean for, for you and me? It means this. All of our longings for comfort and peace, to find rest from our burdens, to, don't you just want to like let your guard down sometimes? Don't you want to be accepted and cherished? All of these desires, you can begin to satisfy them now in this life. Let me say that again. You can begin to satisfy desires for acceptance, longing, comfort, the things that we really need. You can begin to satisfy them now through this open door relationship with God. Jesus has set before you an open door into the heavenly places and he says to you come my child come peer into heaven's realm refresh yourself at my table. My spirit is with you. In this heavenly door, it is wide open. I open it. No one can shut it. It is there for you forever. It's going to be okay. And Jesus wants us to have that now. The door is open. We won't have it fully, but the door is open. You have his word. You have his scriptures which tell you the truth. The truth of God's great plan to save the world, you know, by rescuing you from, uh, your, from your sin by his grace. This is a plan he is currently unfolding 
You know, heaven hasn't come to the earth yet, but Jesus has opened the door that we would see what's going on and be encouraged truly. We, we will have tears, but we will also have smiles if we know him. The door is open. What a gift. Okay, so one, Jesus has given his weak little church an open door. Now two, Jesus also gives them a day of victory. A day of victory. This victory has two parts. Uh, the, the synagogue bowing down before them is one part, and the other part is them being kept from an hour of trial. Uh, so we're going to handle the synagogue victory first. Look at verse 9. Jesus says that the members of the synagogue of Satan will come and bow down before the church in Philadelphia. Synagogue of Satan. Like, those are harsh words. What's going on here? I think a little history will help us to interpret this. So after Jesus was, uh, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he sent his apostles out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth in order for them to bring the good news of Jesus. The king has come. The, the king has accomplished it. The kingdom's here. And his apostles did that. And whenever they went to a city, they would go to the synagogue in the city. And they would say, hey, everyone, uh, the, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has come. It was Jesus, and he fulfilled our Jewish scriptures, and the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It has started. You know, Jesus was a thoroughly Jewish person fulfilling thoroughly Jewish scriptures. And, and whenever Jews heard this, many of them rejoiced. They believed they trusted him, that their hope had been fulfilled in him. However, there were also lots of Jews who rejected Jesus. And this synagogue of Satan most likely just falls right into that category. And not only did they reject Jesus as their king, but they would also reject anybody who thought Jesus was the king, his, his followers. These are the same sorts of people who stoned Stephen, who tried to kill Paul, who persecuted the church. And there in Philadelphia, they would have kicked them out of the synagogue and slammed the doors in their faces. And this was mothers against daughter, daughters, uh, sons against fathers. And this makes sense out of what Jesus says in verse 9 about how, look at, look at what he says. He says, they, they say they are Jews, but they aren't Jews. They're actually lying. Because if they were truly Jews at heart, they would rejoice at Jesus, but they didn't. And, and, and those who did follow Jesus, the church there in Philadelphia, they had they'd lost these friends and family in a sense. Like they, they were gone. That was a pain there. And you know that they were heartbreaking, uh, heartbroken. What they would have wanted most was for their unbelieving friends and family to, to come and believe, to have hope, to... To, to know and, and, and be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. That's what these Christians would have wanted most. And, and that actually brings us to this whole issue of the synagogue bowing down in the text before the Christians. I don't know. I, I, I was like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to say that in front of a church. But, you know, I, I went and I, I traced the, the history of this phrase. And it comes from the Old Testament. It's, it's really interesting. See, this bowing down, the synagogue bowing down before them, it's not bowing down in submission like conquered subjects would come and bow down in, in like humiliation and shame. 
It's actually a bowing down in reverence and appreciation. Because this language of bowing down comes from the prophecies of Isaiah, where Gentiles, Gentiles were foretold to come to Jerusalem, you know, bringing gifts and riches and all this stuff, and, and they would bow down and they would worship the true God in reverence and joy and hope. Essentially, Jesus is saying that even though in Philadelphia these Jews have denied him and broken their Christian friend's heart and shown themselves to, to really be Gentiles like in a spiritual sense and not Jews, nevertheless, Jesus is going to save some of them, many of them. What a day of victory. And it's not that the Christians are wanting to lord it over them. They want their friends to get the gospel. And so does Jesus. And so Jesus is saying he's going to give them faith. You know, what an encouragement to these worn down Christians who have lost so much. Now, imagine for a second that your, your family and your friends that are most antagonistic towards the faith, the ones that have slammed the door in your faces, the ones who have kept you up at night because you are fretting over them, well, Jesus is saying that he cares about them too and that he will give many of them understanding. They will understand that Jesus has loved you, not because of whatever reason, but because of his grace. Not because of ethnic heritage or any shallow thing, but because he's, he's a kind and loving God. And, and in some sense, and this is the really uncomfortable thing, in some sense, these future converts are going to bow before you. It's uncomfortable, but yet what greater thing could, could you wish for them than for their hearts to cry out, we were wrong about Jesus. We're sorry. Uh, please tell us everything. Help us to worship him. And that's what Jesus is saying that he's going to do. So let us hope and pray for nothing less than that victory. Okay, the other part of the victory, it has to do with being kept free from what Jesus calls an hour of trial. Look at verse 10. They've kept his word. They've endured patiently. And they're going to be kept from a trial that is coming upon all who dwell on earth. So what does it mean for Christians to be kept from this like end of the world sort of trial? It is not, and I'll be clear about this, it is not that there will be a time of trial and tribulation and then poof, all the Christians will disappear off the face of the earth. It's not that. Other passages in scripture shed light on what it looks like to be kept uh, during the time of this trial. Daniel 12 which Revelation is heavily tied to Daniel. Daniel 12 says that God will refine his people by trial, yet the wicked will perish in the same trial. They both go through the trial, yet God's people are kept faithful and true. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, what does Jesus pray? Does he pray for his people to be rescued in that great time of judgment by being plucked away. No. Jesus prays that the Lord 
would keep them safe, keep them safe from the evil one, but not take them out of this world. Essentially, Jesus is saying that in the last days, those last days, which started with the death of Christ and will continue to his return, God will keep his people firmly in his grasp. He will keep them from falling away from the faith, even whenever everything in the world would seek to pull them down, even when life is hard, when sin is high, and it feels like we are on the brink of losing everything, and we want to give up, and we want to give up. Jesus has us. He is keeping us. And look at verse 11. He's going to put a victor's crown on your head. It's like a, like a gold medal on an Olympian's chest. Victory is guaranteed for those who entrust themselves to Jesus. And, and it's, it's not that they can even mess this up. Look, he's keeping them in the faith. He's keeping them in spiritual trials. And man, I need this victory in my life. I need this day of victory. You know, if you have ever felt that you have just blown it, you've messed up one too many times, that neither God nor man should want anything to do with you, uh, that you've done, a, you've done a poor job being a witness to Christ, and it seems like in, in countless ways you've denied Jesus' name and your word and your deed, and loved ones, loved ones have slammed doors, and you feel like your voice is small, you feel powerless. And it seems like real victory is just too good to be true. Then please hear me. Jesus has done it. Jesus is keeping you safe. You will not fall away. Though all the world would try to pull you down with them, he is keeping you. Like, Jesus walks around with a, a photo of you in his pocket. Like, you're his person. He has given you victory beyond what you could ever hope for. So embrace it in this life. You know, I will not let fear and failure be the only story about me that I tell. My God is victorious, and he will save many of those who have rejected him just as he saved me, and he will never let us go. That is true. And that victory, that great day of victory is our gift. Jesus has given his weak little church an open door, a day of victory, and, and lastly, a place in God's temple. Look at verse 12. Jesus says that he will set his victors as a pillar in the temple of his God and that they will never leave it. Pillar. Pillars don't move. They are of structural integrity to the building. You cannot take a pillar out of a temple without the temple falling down. This means that if God has given you faith, then you have been set up as a pillar. You have received a permanent place in God's house, in his presence. So permanent is your place that God would have to destroy everything he has done if he wanted to get rid of you. If you're a believer, then you're in God's temple now. You're it. 
And you can't change that one way or another. You know, Jesus in this text is the one who has set you up as a pillar. He keeps you from falling away. He makes you an overcomer by giving you victory. And, and, and much to the dismay of the ancient Philadelphian non-Christians, you know, Jesus doesn't care about the ways that, that we figure out who we want to spend time with. Like Jesus is making you a place and, and the rest of the world was making places for people based on their ethnicity, culture, what you looked like, personality, how much money you have, many other socio-economic cultural factors that, you know, we choose whenever we're trying to find out who our friends are. No, Jesus breaks all the rules by inviting every sort of person from every sort of place to be a permanent part of his life. You read later in Revelation, every tribe, people, nation, tongue, everybody from every place, like all sorts of people are being brought into Jesus's life, his eternal life. All by his gracious choice. That's the one determining factor. Imagine how encouraging this would have been to those Christians in Philadelphia who had been kicked out of synagogues, even pagan temples that they had worshipped in before they converted. Like, they had lost their place in society and life. And, and now think, think about that for a second. Everybody else in society was telling them that they had lost their place with God. They didn't have a place in the synagogue. They didn't have a place in the temple. Because they followed Jesus, they had forfeited their sure place in God's presence. But God disagrees. And he's willing to put his name on it. Uh, Elena and I are buying a house right now. First time for us. Uh, so much money. So many contracts. It's awful. Um, and we have had to put our signatures on all sorts of paperwork. And whenever we do that, we, we are writing our names to say, this is really us. This is really us making these decisions. It, it is, it is a, shine, a sign, an assurity that we're going to do it. God is putting his signature all over the pillar. Did you notice that in the text? He is writing his name every way he can on this pillar. See that in verse 12. The name of God. The name of God's city, the new Jerusalem from God, Jesus' own new name. Signatures all over the pillar. God's signature all over you. God has taken the least likely, the least expected, the weakest, the ones who are willing to say we're not superheroes, we don't have much power, the ones who are embarrassingly honest about their own faults and needs, the ones who are scared and nervous to, to be known and open. Uh, the ones who struggle to get their life to line up with their doctrine. The ones who sort of stumble into the Jesus thing a little late in life. The ones whose faith feels like it's hanging on by a thread. Jesus takes all these and he says, I'm going to make all of you into my house. My house of grace. You know, I'm going to be your hero. I'm going to keep you secure. You, you are mine, and you always will be mine, and I've put my name on you. You will dwell in me, in my temple, and I will dwell in you. This place in God's temple is your gift. So to the Christians as well as the non-Christians in the room, do you want these gifts? 
Do you want an open door into the riches of heaven and communing with God? Do you want a day of victory to look forward to, to, to ease your fears, to give you hope and comfort? Do you want a place in God's temple to be assured of his love for you? These gifts are yours in Christ. May we all grow to appreciate them and receive them more and more because we need them and that's why he's given them. So embrace Jesus, embrace these gifts because they are infinitely more valuable than anything you could ever lose. Let us pray.